Well, Jesus is now 18 miles away from Jerusalem. It will take roughly six hours for him to climb from below sea level to the great city on the hill, approximately 3,325 feet, to fulfill his purpose, the purpose for which he turned his face toward it back in chapter 9. The anticipation of those who were following with him, or following him, was growing. It was growing step after step as they made their way along through Jericho and as they were to come to Jerusalem. And it was growing for a couple of reasons. One, Passover was coming. And it was, of course, a big deal. And so with it approaching, they were looking forward to it. But second and more important, uh, Jerusalem, with its prophetic background and its strategic military position, as well as it being a throne city, it was therefore the anticipated location of the consummated kingdom. It was that place where the Messiah, immediately upon his arrival in most minds, would consummate the kingdom. Despite the fact that Jesus has said at least seven times that the kingdom was going to come after and require first his own execution on the cross, rather than his leadership of a military conquest. Everybody, most everybody with him was thinking more about the latter than the former. They carried too much baggage and were unable to fully comprehend a kingdom that was already and not yet. They couldn't get it through their minds that they, they couldn't understand how a kingdom could be established now, but not fully consummated until some time in the future. How could the Messiah be here and the kingdom be now present and at the same time yet to come? Many have the same problem today. Many have that same struggle. They have the same difficulty understanding how the kingdom of God is now and also yet to come. They carry too much baggage to understand or comprehend the idea of a kingdom that is already as well as not yet. And that's why Jesus tells this parable. He tells the parable to help those who are following and as well as us tonight to help us understand. The, the purpose of the parable is to clear up significant misunderstanding. The purpose of the parable is to correct faulty thinking and false perceptions or wrong perceptions and dare I say false teaching. He told the parable to prepare them and ultimately to prepare us for what was about to take place in Jerusalem and to once again stress the kingdom is is both already and not yet. 
Even though the king was about to, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, he was about to triumphantly enter the city, the kingdom was not going to be consummated immediately. And because of that, because of the delay, his followers were going to need instructions on how to live in between. Our outline has four parts. I want us to see the certainty, the responsibility, the generosity, and the severity of this parable. And that order is correct. I'm going to stray from the advice of my homiletics professor, what he gave me many years ago, and I'm going to forego uh, what is our custom, and I am not going to end on a positive note. Fair warning. And I'm not going to tie things up in a neat bow of grace. That's not to say that there's not going to be grace. There will be good news in the midst of our passage, but I'm not going to end there because notice Jesus does not end there. Jesus concludes with bad news. Jesus concludes with an un on an unpleasant note. And I have chosen to do the same because if it's good enough for me, it's good, good enough for me. And I pray that ending on an unpleasant note will be used for his glory and our good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, as we have been praying over the last 24 hours or so, we would ask that by your spirit that you would grant power to the preaching of your word. Grant us all spiritual eyes and ears that we need to apprehend, uh, praise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and his gospel. Would you awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us and then would you refresh us, encourage us and comfort us? I'm unfit for this task to which you called me and in need of in need of you. So would you grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you this evening and good for your church. We pray all these things for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen. Well, Jesus begins the parable this way. He says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. There, there isn't simply one certainty in this parable, there are actually four here in these first few verses. And I want to briefly describe them for us. Uh, Jesus is the nobleman in the parable. And he communicates certainty in four areas. He communicates certainty about his reign, about his return, about his reception, and also about his rejection. First, he describes his reign. It's been a topic that he's been addressing. If you've been with us over uh, the course of our study of Luke, this has been a recurring theme. The long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah has 
has come, and he's come to establish his kingdom, which he is doing, over which he would rule and reign. And he, the king, was in their midst. Therefore, the kingdom was near and at hand. The kingdom was a present reality as much as he himself, as the king, was the present reality. However, his coronation and his consummation of the kingdom would not be immediate as many thought it would be. Jesus was actually counting on the coronations of both Herod and his son Archelaus to still be fresh in their minds some 30 years prior. For just as they had to both, father and son at one point, uh, had to journey to Jerusalem, I mean, I'm sorry, journey to Rome from Jerusalem to receive the kingdom and, and have their rule confirmed by Caesar, Jesus says that he himself would have to journey a great distance to the throne of heaven where he would receive his rule, the confirmation of his rule by his father. Now what he doesn't say in this particular passage that he has said previously is that that confirmation must come in his own words, right? After having been delivered over to the Gentiles, after having been mocked and shamefully treated, after having been spit upon, after having been flogged, and after having been killed. To take his rightful place, he would bear his own cross of execution before he could be exalted. It must come first. He would have to die and be buried first. He would have to ascend, he would have to rise from the dead and then ascend into heaven to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he would be coronated as king. And this is exactly what happened. Listen to these words of Peter from Acts chapter 2 in the first sermon that we have, uh, really first Christian sermon there at Pentecost. He said, this Jesus, he wraps up this way, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you The Apostle Paul put it this way, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that brings us to the second certainty, which is his return. Having been coronated, or having been exalted and coordinated, uh, coordinated, and having received the kingdom that he had earned by conquering the enemies of sin and death and Satan, through his own death and resurrection, he would return. He would return one day to establish his throne on the kingdom, uh, in the kingdom, or of the kingdom, on earth. And a month ago, we saw in chapter 17, we learned that that return was going to be distinctive, it was going to be definitive, and it was going to be divisive. 
What was a spiritual kingdom would become a physical kingdom. It would be established and encompassed and encompass the entire earth, and not the earth, but the new heavens and the new earth. It was certain. It was as certain as his rule in man. And that, of course, leads us to the final two certainties. While he was away, there would be those who would receive him, and there would be those who would reject him. There would be those who would love him and submit themselves to, to him and, and his rule, and they would serve him. And there will be those who will hate him. There will be those who reject him and rebel against his rule and reign and would persecute those who would, who uh, actually do love him, submit themselves to him and serve him. There will always be those who treasure him, and there will always be those who mock him. That will be the case until it returns. It is certain. And make no mistake, the certainty of his reign, the certainty of his return, and his reception and his rejection isn't determined by whether you or I believe it or not. There's, their certainty is established by the fact that God himself has said they are certain. Their certainty is derived from his character. Right? He, is, he is holy and pure and righteous and good and therefore cannot lie. Through the prophets, God the Father said the Son would come, and he did. God the Son said that he would die and rise from the dead, and he did. And because he came, as the Father said, and because he died and was resurrected as he said he would be, we know that his reign and his return and his reception and his rejection are just as pure. They are just as certain. And that certainty should provide us confidence and hope in the midst of the world in which we live. Well, the fact that the kingdom is both already and not yet means that there is time between the coronation and the consummation. The kingdom is now, but the kingdom is not yet. The kingdom is already, and it is also to come. So we find ourselves again in the in-between. We find ourselves in the midst of waiting, and as we know, as we've admitted before, and as we've said before, that we don't wait well. We don't like waiting. So he moves, Jesus moves in this parable from certainty to responsibility. Look at verse 13 again. He says, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minors and said to them, engage in business until I come. And then in verse 15, he says, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom uh, he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. During the delay, idleness was not an option. They couldn't sit around and twiddle their thumbs. The nobleman called his servants together and he graciously distributed an equal portion of his estate. He actually distributed about three to four months wages to each of them. And I know it's a dirty word to say these days, but they, they have been privileged. They have the privilege of being entrusted with a significant amount of money and the responsibility to do business with it. 
They were put to put his money to use and to buy and to sell and to trade. The nobleman was expecting uh, his work to continue, uh, his possessions to increase, his business to remain stable, and his position to remain secure while he was gone. They carried that weight of responsibility. And they were given that responsibility to be good stewards of what he had entrusted each of them. It was a treasure that they were to guard and to protect, to put to use, to invest, and to increase. And of course, the most obvious question that we ask, the most, the typical question, the most typical question is, what does a minor represent? What is it that the Lord, the Lord Christ gave to each of those servants? Right? What did he give his disciples to, to steward while he tarries during the in-between? What responsibility have we been given while the Lord is away and we await his return? What are we to be doing? What are we to be actively engaged in in regards to his kingdom? And to answer that question, the first thing that we have to understand is and notice that every servant in the parable was given the same amount. And they were all given the same amount of money. Each was given that minor. So here in Luke's gospel, the idea that the minors represent gifts doesn't quite fit the context. Because while we've all been given a gift or gifts, we have not all been given the same gift. So what is it that we've all been given and called to steward? What have we all been given a responsibility to put to work on behalf of the king? And the answer is we've been given the gospel. We've been given the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the minor represents, the good news of the kingdom, that which we've been hearing about over and over and over throughout this gospel. The good news of the kingdom that Christ has been proclaiming, the, the good news of the kingdom that he has been uh, that he's been sharing through his ministry of proclamation and presence. We have been given as the church, as his disciples, that same mandate, the same responsibility to proclaim the good news. We've been given the responsibility to put the gospel to work while he's away. But of course, that leads us to another question. What does that even look like? What is putting the gospel to work? How, do, how are we engaged in business in regards to the gospel? How do we put the gospel to work in order for the kingdom to expand? Well, it begins with carefully making use of the graces we've been given. And, and what I mean is it, it means living lives in which we are regularly repenting of our sins and turning to faith in Christ. It means living lives in which we are continually depending upon the ministry of the Word and the Spirit in our lives. The ministry of the, the Spirit and the Word that sanctifies us. It means making use of the ordinary and simple means of grace, of word, sacrament, and prayer that are the God-chosen and God-given instruments and, and uh, through which the Spirit enables us to receive Christ and all the benefits of the re redemption that He has secured for us. 
And the dividend that we receive or the dividend that we experience is our growth and confidence. We do this as we trust the Lord to meet our every need, whether those needs be spiritual or physical or mental or emotional. We do that as we learn and grow in our knowledge and understanding of just how significant it is that we have been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And that we allow that truth and that significant truth as we grow in that knowledge and understanding of his work. It affects our our lives, our marriages, our, our families, our parenting, the jobs that we do, the friendships that we have. We do it as we are faithful and obedient to the king in the ordinariness of life, in the midst of our homes and neighborhoods and schools, in in our places of employment. And we do it as we serve the needs of others. We do it through mercy ministries to those who are sad and grieving and lonely and afraid and sick and in pain and poor and needy. And we do it, and we also do it as we invest in the spreading of the gospel through our spending of and our financial, our financial support of and prayer for our missionaries around the world. In the words of Philip Ryken, as long as it is done with the intention of bringing glory to God, anything and everything we do is an investment in the kingdom of God. Jesus is coming soon, he says, and we should be busy for him with the gospel. But I believe more specifically, all of those things are true, but more specifically, based upon where Luke places this story and the connection that he makes with the previous story of Nicodemus. That's not right, not Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, sorry. Zacchaeus. Because of that strong connection, the business that we're to be involved in is seeking a savior. We go into all the world and make disciples of all nations through our ministry of proclamation. Now, having said all that, I'm sure that there isn't anyone in this room that would say that they have done enough with what they've been doing. I myself have to admit, like you, that I have not done all I could have been with the gospel that's been entrusted to me. All of us fall short. All of us never do enough or our best. But here's the good news I think. Even in those moments when we realize our failure, of not doing enough and not doing our best and not being good stewards of the gift of the gospel that's been given to us. And in those moments when we feel the guilt, right, just weighing us down, it's the same gospel that comes to our rescue. It's the gospel that's been entrusted to us that comes to our rescue. The love and the acceptance of the Father are standing before him. Our salvation is not dependent upon or determined by what we have done, are doing, or will do. Our salvation is not dependent upon what we haven't done, are not doing, and what we won't do. Our salvation is determined 
by what Christ has done for us alone. And we learn that our, our king is patient, our king is kind, our king is not harsh, our king is not cruel, he is gracious, he's forgiving. And as we're going to see in verses 15 to 19, he's faithful and generous beyond description. You see, the nobleman, the nobleman's return meant it was time for the servants to give an account for what they had done with what he had given them. Had they been faithful and obeyed? Well, not. But before we look at the nobleman's response to the servants, I think it's important to notice what the first two servants said when Jesus comes to, or when the nobleman came to them, when he appeared before them. Both said this: "Your mina has made." Interesting, is it not? Both servants increased the nobleman's original investment. The first took the one mina and earned 10 times the amount. The second took the mina and earned five times the amount. But neither, notice, neither takes credit for the increase. They didn't say, look what I've done, and hand over all the loot. They both gave the credit to the mina. And I think Jesus' point is clear, the success or failure of our putting the gospel to work is not dependent upon ourselves. The success or failure of our putting the gospel to work is dependent upon the Lord. Paul says very clearly the gospel itself is the power into salvation. The power is not in us. The power is in the gospel. We don't change or sanctify ourselves. It's the gospel at work within us by the Spirit who, again, in Paul's words, has been deposited into us as a down payment and guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You and I don't save people or change people. We share the gospel with people and we minister to people. It's the spirit that works in the hearts and minds of people, bringing them to life and drawing them to Christ and then molding them and making them into who God has created and saved them to be. We don't build the kingdom. I'm going to say that one again. We do not build the kingdom. The kingdom is being expanded one person at a time through the gospel as the spirit internally calls sinners to salvation through the external call of the gospel it goes out as we share it with others the bottom line is any faithfulness that we exhibit any good that we do is by god's gracious enabling any good that we might do is by the grace of God as he ministers to others through us. 
any return on the investment that we make, any fruit that we see, and it's produced as a result of his gracious work in the hearts of those who are his. And this is, this is what makes the generosity Jesus described, describes that much more astounding. Because we're not only benefactors of God's grace, we're also rewarded for his grace that is at work within us and that he does through us. Notice the first man, he was praised for his work. Both of the men were given promotions for their work. And they're promoted and rewarded proportionately to what they had invested in, in the return on their investment. They were faithful in a little, and they were given more to steward. The one who earned 10 minas was given 10 cities. The one who earned five minas was, was given five cities. The Lord took great pleasure in that work. He was delighted in the faithfulness of his servants, and he rewarded them extravagantly. Both his grace and his blessings were bountiful in their lives. But again, he was ultimately rewarding the grace that was in them, that was at work within them. The nobleman had graciously given the minas to the servants. And yes, they were faithful. But his money worked and brought a return. He blessed their work that they would not have been able to do, and he blessed the return they would not have experienced apart from his grace. And brothers and sisters, we too are going to be rewarded for our faithful stewardship of the gospel. And the rewards we receive are going to be proportionate to the work that we've done. But no matter who receives more and who receives less, we will all receive far more than we deserve. God will be extravagant in his generosity toward us. Because he already has, right? He's already been extravagant and lavishing grace upon us. He's going to remain consistent. We've all been graciously given entrance into the kingdom. We've all, and we all also graciously be rewarded for our faithfulness. But we must remember, as Augustine once said, when God crowns our merits, he will not be crowning anything but his own gifts. He's therefore worthy of all glory and honor and praise that his name alone is given. And that brings us to the final point. In due time, I'm going to summarize even more than usual. You see, this, the nobleman was not only a generous man, he was an intensely severe man. 
He would not tolerate enemies of his kingdom who were outside of his household, nor would he tolerate imposters posing as servants inside his household. In the end, both rejected his authority. In the end, both refused to submit to his reason. Both maligned his character. Both simply despised who he was. The false servant was simply closer in proximity to the nobleman than the enemy was and had benefited for a time from being a part of the household. But unfortunately, in the words of Daryl Bach, his faithless association to the nobleman was no different than the outright rebellion of the enemy. In the end, both deserve the same fate. And there's no way to soften the description of the, de of the destiny that awaited them. You can't get around it. Verse 27 says, But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Beloved, Jesus' strong language in this parable is meant to drive home the reality of Jesus. In the words of Ralph Davis, it is simply impossible to describe the final judgment pleasantly or attractively. It is intended to be awful, he says, to scare you, even to offend you, if in that way it can get your attention. Here are four quick thoughts regarding this as we close. First, we are left with the same choice that we have been left with throughout our study. Though he's been gone a long time, King Jesus is ruling and reigning and one day will return in triumph. And when he does, it will be too late to choose. The choice must be made while there is still time. And the choice is life or death, accept or reject, flee or follow, live or die. There's no middle road. There's no fence to straddle. There is no position of neutrality. We must choose this day whom we are to serve. Second, if you have taken the gospel for granted and you've hidden it inside a handkerchief for a later time, because you just you just don't have time right now. There are other things that you need to do, better things that you need to do. Let me simply say that you are being careless because you're presuming upon the grace and mercy of God. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. And he is going to return when we least expect it. So the call from the parable from Jesus is to wake up 
and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus because today is the day of salvation. Thirdly, we cannot simply rest in our participation in the outward administration of the covenant of grace. In other words, we can't simply rest in our involvement in the church. We can't simply rest in our involvement in worship. We can't rest in our baptism. We can't rest in the Lord's table. We are called to rest in Christ and in Him alone. If we don't repent and turn to Him in faith, if we do not embrace the internal reality to which the sacraments point, the Lord will consider us false servants and will see our faithless association in the same way He will see the outright rebellion of His enemies. And upon his return, we won't hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We will hear, depart from me, I never lose you. We must rest in Jesus, the one to whom the sacraments point. And finally, our call, brothers and sisters, is to seek and save them. We are to go into all the world and make disciples, not to make them comfortable in their sin, not to make them like us, not even to meet their needs in this life only. We are to warn them of the impending need. God is not a tyrannical killjoy. He is loving and gracious and merciful. And we know that because he sent the Lord Jesus to seek and save sinners. To do what we could not do for ourselves. But when Jesus returns, he will not come as Savior, but as King and Judge. And he will make his enemies a footstool. In Jesus' own words, they will be slow because of their cosmic treason. We should therefore love them enough to tell them the truth. Gently, but firmly, graciously, but honestly. Brothers and sisters, may we be found doing our king's business when he returns.